listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Within our world today, one of the pillars of popular understanding or philosophy of life is definitely the notion of progress, linear progress. Like I see the path of my life and it's just going to steadily get better as a grounding of hope or optimism. Progress says that life for me and for my community, for my church, for my society, it is going to get better. And it's going to feel better over time for me. And at times that story is so believable and just irresistible. Because the momentum of our life seems unstoppable. The wind is fully behind our sails. We're just coasting in a blessed optimism, growth and abundance. You see this in so many ways, and of course, it infects us as churches to get bigger, become more effective, make progress. Upward mobility, both in fame and in finances, are not only assumed, but are chased after. And in a life of normalness or mundaneness or relative unknownness is despised, actually. But that optimism, that place of one's hope and life is also very flimsy. I've been thinking about the word flimsy this week. It's a word that means, of course, not strong, not solid, not convincing, not grounded. My mind has been meditating on images of flimsiness, as I've witnessed, My neighbors down the way, uh, they have one of those classic large sloped DC yards that all the earth is held in by retainer walls. You know what I'm talking about? All the way up and finally their retaining wall fell over, sadly. I'm waiting for mine to fall over one day. (laughs) And so they started replacing it and they replaced some of it with cinder blocks and then perhaps they ran out of money and I can't blame them because it's expensive. So one section, they've just propped up a bunch of wooden posts and big slats of wood to hold back the earth. And for now, that will work. And for now, it's okay. But when the pressure comes and when the incalculable weight of earth and water and mud rests upon it, it will appear to be flimsy once and for all. I've seen that in the toys of my children as they've grown up. There's a whole category of toys marketed in in flashy packaging and nice pictures, but when you open it up, you realize that the material is so cheap and flimsy that its lifespan is not going to be counted in uh, months or years, but in seconds, if my youngest son has anything to say about it, or minutes. I've heard from you about the flimsiness from many of my friends about trying dating apps. (laughs) They've been presented with a picture of a potential partner who is strong and stable and attractive and even godly, and their hopes rise. But when the reality of that person actually gets presented to them, they realize that the dating app profile was a flimsy imitation of the truth. Hold that image of flimsiness there. And those few images I give you, to which we could add so many more, are why within our individual and communal lives today, there's not only such a strong undercurrent of optimism, there is also such a strong current of despair, of desperation, of violence. The grounding of hope and progress is an insidious lie because it leaves us tossed to and fro as we actually navigate actual life, which in many ways is not linear. It involves constant disruption and conflict. It involves the constant realization that neither we or our communities are whole or holy. 
not capable, but instead things are profoundly broken within us and within our communities, and we need healing. We need constant mending. So what do you do about hope when things are just bad and when the timing of bad things is just bad? (laughs) The gospel of Jesus Christ boldly proclaims and announces a true hope in the face of the most horrific and troubling realities of life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is is good news that was announced with boldness and conviction out of the experience of torture, of betrayal, of oppression, of death, of poverty, of oppression. It is not a gospel that promises escape from pain, for that would be flimsy. That would be not truth. It's a gospel that promises transformation and hope in the midst of pain, through pain, to the path of healing. And it is precisely because of the character of this gospel that makes it true. As Reverend Dr. Irwin Entz will say in his new forthcoming book, which I requested a copy of this week, and he gave it to me, but it comes out next year, and the title of it is Hope Ain't a Hustle. God's not hustling us by promising us hope. There is something real, there is something solid to hope in, in the midst of the uncertainty of your life. So as we take this journey together today towards the hope of the gospel, I, of course, go to the book of Lamentations. You were expecting that, I know. The book of Lamentations is this ancient collection of five Hebrew poems. We're not sure who wrote them, but if you look in your Bible, why you've probably missed Lamentations in your Bible is that it is stuck in between Jeremiah. It is stuck right after Jeremiah. And history has said, both Jewish and Christian history has claimed that Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet, is the author of Lamentations. That's why you find it there. Most of these five poems are acrostic in nature, meaning they take the first letter to the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and they start lines. But the grief of this book is really, really raw. If you go back and read all five poems, they are just brutal to read. You are getting some of that brutality here. It is this combination of well-ordered poetry, alphabetical, but extremely raw grief. And the poetry of this book is written in response to probably what is the worst event in all of the Old Testament. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that Israel is brought out of slavery in Egypt. They are promised a land. They are taken into that land. They eventually build the temple and have kings in that land. But in 586, the whole entire land is conquered. The temple is destroyed, the priests are murdered, the kings carried off into exile, women and children slaughtered as victims of war. It is truly the biggest calamity that the people have faced. And it is in response to that calamity that this word, that lamentations, is written. Lamentations, aicha in Hebrew, is still recited once a year in the Jewish faith on Tish B'Av, which is one of the holy days. It is a time for Jewish people to, to remember the destruction of the first and second temple, as well as all the uh, calamitous events of human history that we still see in the world today. And so this poem, number three, is the longest and simply remarkable. It's beloved by generations of God's people. It is a powerful poem of lament. It echoes or quotes... Explicitly, Psalm 22, Isaiah 50, the suffering servant song, the book of Job. It is the only word of hope within the entire book of poetry. But first, it's actually a word of hopelessness. So I want to explore the journey from hopelessness and despair into hope. 
And I see within this poem a three-part movement. I know you're surprised. And it all begins with the letter R. There is a release, there's a remembrance, and there's a resting. A release, a remembrance, and a resting. First, there's a release. The poem begins, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He's driven me. He's brought me into darkness without any light. The poet, the poet begins by, by fully releasing all that he is suffering. He's, he's releasing all the harsh realities of life that either he has seen or that the people have seen. And he's voicing their pain collectively. He's voicing it within a time, of course, within God's story that the prophets, the spokespeople of God, have been very active. Because hearkening back to that story again, the people came into the land. They built the temple, but they did not remain faithful to the Lord. Their affluence, their success caused them to forget the Lord. Their worship became disordered. It became idolatrous. And they, became, and they began to perpetuate whole systems of injustice. They began to grind up the lives of the poor. They began to be oppressors. They began to perpetuate all of these realities. Their lives were completely disintegrated. On one hand, they proclaim with their lips the name of God and the love of God, but with their hands and with their feet, they, they failed completely to love. And God was not pleased with their disintegration. God did not appreciate being played. God wasn't going to be a prop in their life. And so... God warned through the prophets over and over again. This comprises a big portion of the Old Testament. It's that portion that you've never read before, let's be honest, um, that you struggle to read. These huge books of prophets and Isaiah and Jeremiah warning the people of God, come back to the Lord. Come back to his love. Be cleansed of your sin. But if not, I will bring divine discipline. I will bring calamity to correct you back on my path. And so the book of Lamentations is written from that point of view. It's written by one who sees all the horror of life and the disaster, not just as some accident or calamity, but actually something that's brought by the hand of God. Because sometimes, here's the deal, it's not just accident or calamity that brings suffering in your life. It's a result of your own actions. It's a result of my own actions, right? It is our actions in relationship or in community that have brought shame, that have brought confusion, that have brought disarray. And if you live in any relationship long enough, a friendship, a marriage, parenting, church, any of it, you will live through a Lamentations 3 moment. You will be failed and you will fail. And there will be disarray as a result of it. That's the point of view of Lamentations. Do you notice all of his language? You. He's talking to God. You may have been struck by it because he's saying, God, you've, you've trapped me. God, you've hunted me. Look at all the different ways he feels. Verse 2, he feels like he's in the dark. I think it's providential that Sister Ashley gave that prayer of light and darkness. He says, you've driven me, you've brought me into darkness without any light. Beforehand, I used to be able to see the environment of my life, the context of my life. I used to be able to discern the path. I used to know where we were going, but now, here I am. I'm in dark. I'm blindfolded. I don't know the way forward. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says that his grief is causing him to be physically broken. 
You see that? He's wasting away. And we know this from grief and trauma in our own life. It affects our gut. It affects our bones. It affects our muscles. It affects our whole body. Look at verse 5 through 7, 9 through 13. The, the poet feels trapped and imprisoned. He feels ensnared. And even, he says, he feels hunted by God. He feels targeted by God, like God set him up like a target and drove his arrows into him. We might think that this is such an irreverent prayer to God, but it seems that the Lord can handle such prayers. Look at verse 8. The poet feels silenced and unheard. Have you ever been there? In the midst of conflict, first of all, he feels like he's crying out to God and God's not listening to him. But secondly, he just feels like he has no voice in the situation. He doesn't know what to say. He's silenced. And his grief is not just between him and the Lord. Look at verse 14. He feels ostracized and mocked and excluded by other people. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples. I've become the objects of their taunts all day long. When we endure communal pain, we often find ourselves on the wrong side of the crowd. We often feel out of harmony with the group. Maybe it's family conflict in your life as you go into Thanksgiving this week. Maybe you are feeling this pain of relationship. The poet says that he is drinking and eating the poison of bitterness. Look at that. 15, he's filled me with bitterness. He sated me with wormwood. Wormwood was a plant, is a plant, with an extremely bitter taste. And so what the author is saying, that his circumstances in life has, have just filled him with bitterness. He doesn't even know about the goodness of life anymore. All of his life just feels like a wound, an open wound. It's painful. And finally, as, as the climax of this part of the, of the poem, he just feels brutally hopeless. Look at that. He says, my, my soul is bereft of shalom. I don't have any peace. In fact, I've been in this situation so long, I have forgotten what happiness is. Does anyone out there have that testimony of sitting in a time where you just can't even remember what it was like to be happy? So he says, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Evidently, this poet, he feels, so, he feels vulnerable enough in God's presence to lay it all before God. That's the undercurring, uh, it's the undergirding assumption. This is such a raw prayer towards God. But to be vulnerable in someone's presence, you have to have trust. You have to know that that person's going to at least listen and not silence you. That's why the poet, he is, he's struggling through this experience of hopelessness and grief and the, the raw experiences of life, but he's struggling on a path to get back to God. So he's released it all this guttural cry, but then he takes his soul from a posture of release to a posture of remembrance. So secondly, a remembrance. There is something that happens here in verse 18 that is the turning point of this poem, but in many ways the most hopeful, and in many ways leads to the most hopeful verses of the book of Lamentations. We just sang it for our offering, right? We sang this refrain. It's been a favorite verse of God's people forever. But what happens in verse 18 where he says, my hope is perished from the Lord. Something is obscured in the English translations because of how we deal with the name of God in the Old Testament, okay? 
Just a little Bible education for you. When you're reading the Old Testament and you see capital L, lowercase o-r-d, it is the generic word for Lord or Master. That is used of God, but also used of earthly uh, rulers. But in the English translation, when you see the word Lord in all caps, that is the personal name of God. In Jewish tradition, it is customary to not spell that out with vowels, but to use the generic Hebrew word Adonai, Lord. Jewish tradition does not say the name of God, but everyone knows when you get to that section of the Hebrew scroll, you are referring to the personal name of the God of Israel. And when you move from talking about God in the generic or the abstract to saying God's name, you are connecting yourself to the character, to the history, to the personal nature of who God is. That is what happens here at verse 18. It's the first time that God is named in this poem. The Jewish commentator Adele Berlin, who is a world-renowned Hebraist and, and taught for generations down at the University of Maryland, I found out this week, she says the literary strategy here is to name God just at the turning point, just on the one hand when God seems most remote, but on the other when God's about to become the main topic of conversation. Because when one writes God's personal name, Adonai, God of the covenant, all of a sudden, God and our understanding of God, it moves from an impersonal abstract force, which we often approach God in. Not just destiny, not just uh, my fate, not just an accident, but a personal God who knows me. And the writer of Lamentations is calling on this personal God to remember him. He says, remember my afflictions, my wanderings, remember my bitterness, remember me. And then what begins to happen is that the poet, the speaker, the prayer, he connects himself to the history, to the character of God. And he makes this famous declaration. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion Therefore, I will hope in him. In the midst of his intense grief and in the midst of his experience of losing hope, the poet begins to reclaim something, but it takes intention. It takes the intention of his soul. Do you see the language? I say to my soul. The, the poet is saying, soul, I know where you are. You, you, you've forgotten happiness. Soul, I know where you are. You're hopeless. I'm going to say something to you that I'm not dealing with an impersonal force. I'm not dealing with an accident in my life. I am being dealt with by a God who knows me. And he's a God of steadfast love. It is the, the famous Hebrew word that undergirds all of the Old Testament, one of the most important words in the Bible, chesed. We can't even translate it quite properly in English. It's something like loyal love, covenant-keeping love, unstoppable love, faithful love. And God has said, it, it, it harkens back to the story, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob and Moses and David, the God who, is, who has said to the people of Israel, I'm making my covenant with you forever. So the poet is saying, even though my circumstances are bleak, even though it seems that all hope is lost, there is a bedrock foundation underneath my feet. The tectonic plates of my life may be shifting and quaking, but underneath that, underneath the crust, there's a bedrock foundation, and that is God's steadfast love. 
It is God's promises, his unbreakable promises. It's God's love. At one point in life or another, you will have to ask yourself, what is your foundation? Life will shift. Your communal, your individual life will shift. You will go through things you couldn't have written into your story before you got into them. You will wake up in realities and you will say, am I living in a dream? How did I get here? But in the midst of that, there is hesed. In, in the midst of that, there is a love that undergirds your life. And if that's the foundation, you can truly endure the shifting circumstances. The author says he remembers God's mercy, which like the sun, rises up the same every morning. You may be going through a Lamentations 3-like time right now, or you may be heading into one soon. But the poet looks at the consistency of the sunrise, and he says, there is, that's what God's mercy is like. Every day is a new opportunity for me to take hold of it. Every day is a new day for God's compassion and living in God's mercy. He remembers God's great immuna, his faithfulness. God's not flimsy. God's not unreliable. Great is God's faithfulness. Humans are flimsy. Human beings are flimsy. They falter both because of their own weakness and sin, but also for the fact that none of us can be all things to all people at all times. A finite being cannot fulfill infinite obligations in your life. It is wonderful to have community, but you cannot base your life on the performance of this or that person, this or that reality. Everything is feeble except one thing. And that is the faithfulness of God. And after he reminds himself of God's hesed, of God's mercy, of God's faithfulness, then he can finally get to, therefore I hope in him. That's the climactic statement. We hope for a lot of things. We hope for improvement. We hope for health. We hope for deliverance. We hope for love. We hope for prosperity. But as Dr. Ince will remind you in his new forthcoming book, Hope Ain't a Hustle, <laughs> He says, hope for something has got to be based on something for it to be valid. I need a reason to be hopeful or I am just wasting my time. Valid hope is based on the promises of God. And hoping in the promises of God is a hope that cannot disappoint. Because that hope is validated by God himself. It's not conditioned on the decisions of people at all. Therefore, when we hope in the Lord, we don't have to be utterly shocked when other people fail. We don't have to be utterly shocked when whole systems or whole societies fail. We were expecting that in the first place <laughs> because people are weak. The question is, where are you placing your hope? The world needs Christian hope because in spite of what you may be thinking in light of this sermon, that, that kind of hope does not equal passivity. It needs pe People need people who are grounded in the hope and the promises of God to make all things new in the world. That emboldens us to not get burnt out. So many social movements are really drumming up optimism over and over again. We can do it. We can make change. There is hope. But that hope is based on human performance. And we're finding it so weak and feeble. We're finding our political system so fragile, can't get anything done right now. But God has given people an unshakable hope to move out into their place and seek shalom knowing that God's bringing shalom, knowing that God has promised to heal all things. So, so it doesn't make people passive. It makes us so active to be grounded in this hope. 
To hope in the Lord is to be in touch with his character. It's to remember the full revelation of who God has shown himself to be. And the amazing thing to me about these lament portions of Scripture, especially like Lamentations 3, is that they are not only heard by God, but in the story of Scripture, as things go, you realize that God himself takes up the lament. He joins in the lament. He sings the lament. He embodies the lament. He suffers the lament. Those portions of scriptures echoed here, Psalm 22, Isaiah 50, and the suffering servant who gives his cheek to the one who strikes, the book of Job. Who could more exemplify that in the whole story of scripture than Yeshua, than Jesus? The one who, like the poet in Lamentations, is the man who has seen affliction. The one who has allowed his light to become utterly darkness. The one who was physically broken and felt his body waste away, verse 3 and 4. The one who was trapped and betrayed and imprisoned by his friends and oppressed by the rulers, even hunted and targeted by God. The one who was silenced and unheard. The one who was ostracized and mocked and excluded and humiliated. The one who drank the poison cup of wormwood and gall and wrath. The one who sang with Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What you see about the hope of the Christian gospel of Jesus Christ is that it is a hope that flowers out of the soil of death of suffering, of weakness. Resurrection hope is born from crucifixion despair. That is the shape of our hope. That is the shape of our life. That is Christian. It is the downward path through the pain, through the sin, through the sorrow of life that paradoxically leads back upwards to healing, to wholeness, to freedom, to joy, to glory. But we refuse that path over and over again. We don't want to believe Jesus' words where he said, a servant is not greater than his master. What I have gone through, you will go through. And we assume that Jesus just put us on a path to pleasure and comfort. No, Jesus has said, I have put you on a path to transformation. I put you on a path to healing. But guess what? Just like undergoing surgery is painful, so undergoing life following me is painful, but it leads to glory. And the character you are developing What I am doing in you, what I am healing in you through your pain is not even worth comparing to the incomparable weight of eternal glory that I am writing in your story right now. Do you see the mature nature of Christian hope? Christian hope does not avoid pain. It isn't shocked by it. It does not avoid conflict or communal dysfunction or family dysfunction. It knows it's coming but it is grounded in the character of a God who is committed to healing it. And that leads to, lastly, a posture of rest. Not of activism, not of celebration, but first, rest. After this beautiful, inspirational word of hope, the poet has an exhortation to those hearing the poem, and it's a little surprising. But not really, because the poem is not written in the midst of the resolution. The poet's still sitting in all the irresolution of his life. It's not celebration time yet. It's not return from exile time yet. And the poet has a prescription for how to cultivate this kind of hope, and that is to rest in silence. Listen to what he said. The Lord is good for those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly 
for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. The writer did not say it is good for one to call a friend and get encouragement. He did not say it is good for one to drink three glasses of wine and fall out on the couch. He did not say it is good for one to practice retail therapy in the midst of their pain. Now, all those things can be okay in their time and place, but when we seek to shortchange the movement of hope from rushing from silence and waiting, we shortchange hope, and we substitute it with a cheap and flimsy imitation that feeds cycles of anxiety, of fear, of hopelessness and instability. We settle for flimsy counterfeits of the kind of hope that God wants us to be planted in, which is him. It is his presence. It is his love. It is his promises. We have to learn the holy practice of sitting down and shutting up, of being in the Lord's presence, of sitting in the messiness of our life of our relationships, of our community. There will be lamentation times. And those of us who have chosen to live our lives in solidarity with, in solidarity with Jesus and therefore in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed and the hurting, we grow tired of the narcotizing force of progress, which is often just a, a smokescreen to hide us from the hurting pain of the world. When we are in relationship with the poor and with the hurting, we know that life is not just one upward progress, that life is a grind. And we begin to see this whole narrative of progress for what it is, which is selfishness, it's greed, it's exclusion. But when we align ourselves with the presence of the suffering servant himself, we are grounded in a love that is so much deeper and so much better than mere progress. So if my sermon last week ended with the discipline of simplicity to counteract the love of money, this week the practice is silence. And it is silence to counteract the force of hopelessness. So practice silence in your life. Practice seeking the Lord's presence in the midst of those situations in your life that are gnawing at you. You know what I'm talking about. Those irresolved tensions. I don't know what it is for you. I have my own. You have your own. But what silence does is it begins to clarify our hearts. We, we, we stop rushing from hither to tither. We stop filling our life up with stimulation. And it can be troubling. Because when we are silent, all the things of our hearts rise to the surface. And we see them. We see our lack of engaging God. We see our lack of desire to even want to be with God. We see our lack of faith in God. We see the weakness of our prayer life. We see our disordered desires. But guess what? That's the work. That's what God is inviting you to. So friends, practice silence. Advent is coming less than two weeks away. Advent is the season of silent waiting. It is the, is the season of knowing that, God, that life is not what it's supposed to be yet. And to wait on the Lord. Here's some practical applications. Seek a guide to enter into times of silence. Maybe it's a pastor or a spiritual director, a counselor, someone who can accompany you both in practices of silence and learning from the silence. Find a time. Find a time in your life where you're going to purposely enter into solitude and silence. You might need to set a timer at first. <laughs> 
Maybe set a timer and start small, five minutes, 10 minutes. And you're just gonna sit in God's presence. You're gonna see what happens. You're gonna allow yourself to wait. Allow the art of solitude and silence to grow within you. Let the spirit of God slowly do his work on your heart. Make time for one another. If we are married or in households, make time for silence. Melissa and I try to give each other the, the practice and gift of a silent retreat once a year. We're struggling this year. We'll see if we get it done. <laughs> Make time for silence in each other's life. Find a space for silence. Find a place where you can go to be silent. My favorite, of course, is the monastery here in our neighborhood, the Monastery of the Holy Land. Find simple prayers to take you into silence. And finally, fight against notions of productivity. Don't go into silence waiting for good things to happen or for things to get done, but waiting to encounter God, the voice of God, the chesed, steadfast love of God, the mercy and compassion of God, the great faithfulness of God. This is the journey from hopelessness to hope, it is releasing all of who we are and what we're experiencing in God's presence. It is remembering the story, the character of God, and it is resting in silence and waiting on God. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.